Hello listeners, this is your podcast host Jacko here. Uh, it's a little intro I'm recording for the interview with uh, Paul White. Uh, we apologize in advance for sound qualities. We had some difficulty with the uh, phone line in Beijing where Paul is based. Uh, there are some noises on the line that we couldn't edit out and we apologize for that, but we still think that his story is a unique and interesting one uh, and so that's why it's worth sharing. So please enjoy and excuse, uh, excuse us for the, uh, the noises on the line. listeners and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host Jacko Zwetslut and it's Friday morning on April 3rd, 2020 here in Seoul. Joining me via Skype from Beijing is my guest today, Paul White, to talk about his unusual experience in being the narrator at Kumsusan Memorial Palace, now known as Kumsusan Palace of the Sun, and sometimes unofficially as the Kim Il-sung Kim Jong-il Mausoleum. Paul White is resident of China and editor of DPRK Business Monthly and has a voice who many visitors to Pyongyang would recognize. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure, pleasure. Now, although we've never met in person, I have heard your voice uh, in 2010 during my visit to what was then still called the Kumsasan Memorial Palace to see Kim Il-sung lying in state. I'm going to ask you more about that later. But uh, first of all, how were you first introduced to uh, both careers? Was it in your student days? Um, well, it was actually back in the 60s. I became very, I was studying Chinese. And as a, what the, as the Americans call a, um, a minor, I did Korean. Wow, back in but the 60s? Took, yeah, back in the 60s. And it took me years and years and years and years to get to the Far East. And I went to South Korea in 19, what was it? I can't remember. Uh, 1973. And I worked there for uh, the Korea Herald for five years. Well, this was during the Park Chung-hee days. Uh, the streets were full of tear gas and riots. And uh, what opened my eyes was the fact that reading the Western press, um, they presented uh, South Korea as uh, an economic miracle a fledgling democracy, not a real democracy, of course, because it was a jackbooted dictatorship. <laughs> they call it a fledgling democracy. And then I thought, well, one, one thing that uh, I'd always suspected was that as opposed to what we, t uh, what the Western press talks about as two careers, it struck me that there was probably only one career divided into half. I read the Western press, and you still read it, and it, it, it gives you the impression that there's like there's a Canada and the United States and a, an Australia and a New Zealand, there are two countries, a North Korea and a South Korea, one bad, one good. And I, it struck me, even in those days, that this probably wasn't true. Uh, but I wouldn't know until I actually went to the other one. Mm -hmm. And then a few, a few years later, I managed to get a visa to North Korea, 1984, the, uh, the Orwell year, 1984. Um, so... You, you mentioned that you went to North Korea for your first visit in 1984, the, the Orwell's year, but you actually asked to go in 1982. So why did it take two years to get the invitation to go up there? Well, um, I was in Hong Kong at the time working uh, as a journalist in Hong Kong. Um, now, in those days, of course, uh, before the invention of, or the, the, the popularization of the, um, of the Internet and social media, North Korea couldn't get its propaganda out. Uh. So you almost never saw anything that, you know, the North Korean propaganda organizations. And I, I managed to get hold somehow of uh, a magazine called Korea Today, 
which they've been putting out for years, a sort of propaganda stuff with nice pictures of uh, how wonderful everybody was. Uh, North Korea was, is still supposed. From an address there, I, I got in contact with the um, North Korean embassy in uh, Beijing, and I went to the consulate, and they said, well, yes, very, thank you very much for your interest. We'll be in touch. And two years later, they were and said, come, come to, uh, they gave me an address in Guangzhou and said, come there, we'll give you a visa. Hmm. And how was that trip? It was, um, well, it was a sort of propaganda trip. They, uh, they paid everything. I think it was a, a spook who took me around who spoke English. And, you know, I saw the, uh, the, the museums and the, the statue of Kim Il-sung, etc. And they're just the propaganda stuff. The place was squeaky clean. Mm. People were very well dressed. Uh, there were no beggars in the streets. Nobody bothered foreigners. In fact, uh, on one occasion, I was saluted in the street by a crowd of children. Wow. Whereas in other places, as a foreigner, crowds of children will insult you. <laughs> this didn't happen in North Korea, which impressed me. Were you? Was it just you, or were you part of a group tour? No, it was just me. Right, okay. It was just it was a private tour. Uh, was it about a week in length? It was uh, 11 days, I seem to remember. Oh, yeah, 11 days. One. Yeah, and, uh, and you said that you believe that your uh, guide may have been uh, an English-speaking uh, agent of the security services. I'm pretty sure, yes. Um, yeah, what kind of things did he ask you about? Well, he didn't ask anything about the West, uh, where he'd been, apparently. Um, but he asked things like, we'd be walking by a stream, and he asked me what, the, what I thought the depth of the stream was, hmm. or what I, I calculated was at the height of a, of a railway bridge. The sort of things that military intelligence people do all the time, that's right. all they're interested in. So I guessed that hmm. he was a, some kind of agent, some kind of uh, security guy. Did he know that you had lived in South Korea before then? Did that come up in conversation? Oh, they knew that. They knew that very well. Yes, I made their point of it. And did they want and to ask always, you about that? No. Hmm. Didn't seem interested at all. Oh. I kept telling them about it, you know, comparing this and comparing that. Uh, they didn't seem at all interested. And after 1984, how many more trips have you been on to North Korea? After that, seven more, because Korea tours uh, you've probably heard of. Sure, we've had them on the show before. Yeah, um, they've been organizing regular tours. I've been with them a few times and uh, made a couple of private trips. Okay, and, and how did you see North Korea change in the decades since your first trip? Well, I was impressed the first time compared to South Korea. I'd say it was about on a par with Japan now. Um, the embargoes, the, the American embargoes being in place since the Korean War, uh, sanctions have been very tight in the past 10 years. Mm. It's amazing that they survive at all. How, how many other countries have survived under such pressures? And uh, what what do you think about the, uh, you know, every time you go on a tour to North Korea, there's always guides there, but were you ever able to uh, to walk through Pyongyang alone without a guide? Oh, yes, and that, that's another thing that surprised me. The first time I went, I asked the guide if I could take a walk around the streets, and he said, oh, yes. He said, why not? He seemed puzzled when I asked this question. Mm. Uh, he said, if you get lost, you know enough Korea to find your way back. And that surprised me, because that was in 1984, the height of the Cold War, and very few foreigners ever went to North Korea. And have you ever done that on any subsequent trips? No, I haven't, because I've always been, uh, on the subsequent trips, um, I've always been with a tour group, like mm -hmm. Korea tours or something like that, and, never, and just sort of went with a group.
Okay, now let's talk about your voice work. How did you become involved in recording the narration uh, for the North Korean government at the uh, Kumsasan Memorial Palace? Well, um, from I think it was 1994, the Korean uh, publishing company came to to Beijing with some polishing to do for uh, English and other languages too. And I did a few, did some of that for them. They paid in renminbi. Uh, I think they were only out of foreign currency. I think it was probably still short of foreign currency. Yeah, in the mid-1990s, yeah. That was 1994, I think. Mm-hmm. And then about uh, three or four years later, the same guys came through Beijing, contacted me and said, could you do a voiceover for us? Hmm. I said, yeah, uh, what is it? They said it's the, the Hall of Mourning. Anyway, 95, I think it was. 93. Anyway, um, I w- they took me down to the, the radio station here in Beijing, and, and they'd taken over the, the Korean section of the radio station here. They gave me a script to read, uh, a, a sort of obituary, and um, I said, this is rubbish. Can I translate it again for you? And they said, yes, do it. So they gave so you I the original it. Korean I, text? Yes, and, 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 the, and the English. So I said, I can't read this out, so I, uh, I'll translate it for you again. They said, that's all right, let's do it. Uh, I did the recording. They, they said, first of all, they said, try to make it sound very mournful. Mm. Try to make so that people feel sad. And then afterwards, when I'd done it, they said, yeah, yeah, that's very good. Thank you very much. I didn't realize I had a talent for making people feel sad. And they <laughs> said, oh, yes, you have. <laughs> so, and they said that without irony, I'm sure. Yes, and this is something else that impressed me about them is that uh, they're very open and naive compared to the South Koreans. We can joke and and talk about things quite openly. How many times did you have to uh, do the recording? Was it just the one time, or was it several retakes? It was, it was just one take. They seemed to be happy with it. Quite really, they were, they were happy with one tank. That's amazing, isn't it? Yes, I, that's what I thought. And then I heard it a couple of years later when I went to the um, to the Kamsusan Palace, you know, where the, the, the guys lying in stayed. Right, because um, when you first I, recorded it, you'd never actually visited the Memorial Palace, had you? Oh, no, no, I hadn't. Right, so you were doing it sight unseen. Uh, all you had was a script to go on. You were, and, and then many, uh, some years later, you finally went. And what was it like to finally visit that mausoleum and to, to walk around hearing your voice through the, the headphones? It was a bit surreal, really. They didn't seem to have changed anything. But I've heard since Kim Jong-il died, they've had somebody else do it, but I don't know what. Are you disappointed? Um, in a sense, yes. Uh, but I remember telling somebody, a North Korean, when I was there, and we were about to go through the, uh, the, the, the palace, I said, by the way, I did the voiceover. And he said, no, you didn't. Oh. Uh, it, it's all done by Koreans. I said, no, it was me. Anyway, I didn't argue about it. Right. I thought, well, maybe they've got it redone, but they hadn't. It was still you then. Uh, huh? So I remember um, noticing Japanese cars in the street. And mm-hmm. he said, no, no, they're all Korean cars. Ah, yeah. With the left-hand side, you know, left-hand drive. Right. And I said, these are Japanese buses. It's right, you drive on the right-hand side. In, and when you see a bus with a left-hand drive, it's imported from Japan. Now, you, you said that um, you'd done some work with North Korean publishing, uh, polishing up uh, the text. Were they English translations of speeches by Kim Jong-il, or sorry, Kim Il-sung, or, or other books? They, they were also, some were, some were speeches, some were simply hagiographies, some were propaganda, and stories, not, modern North Korean stories. One th- another thing I noticed was that the when they're translating um, 
straightforward uh, prose. It's quite good. In fact, it's very good. As compared to the Chinese, they take a lot of interest and a lot of care. However, when it comes to writing something uh, uh, which is sort of um, meant to be humorous or meant to be tragic or meant to have anything but straightforward translation, it tends to be gibberish because they don't have the uh, um, exposure. Now, uh, who was Marcia Marx? And tell us what she did for the North Korean government and how you came to take over her duties. Marcia Marx was, um, she used to work for the foreign languages press where I worked. The North Koreans, they contacted her. I suppose with a name like Marx, they thought she couldn't be all bad even though she was American. (laughs) A year later, they came back again and um, called me. And the guy said, hello, Paul, this is Kim speaking. Yes, Kim, what can I do for you? He said, how, could I, how can I meet Marsha Marx? And I said to him, um, I hope you won't be meeting Marsha Marx for a long time yet. Said, oh, what do you mean? She died six months ago. Who? Mm-hmm. Oh, she never told us. <laughs> that sort of thing happens from time to time. He didn't seem to think it was funny. I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> now, did you ever consider moving to Pyongyang and living there full-time to edit their English-language uh, material as you did in Seoul in the 1970s? Well, I considered it, but of course by that time, when I was living here in Beijing, I had kids in school and um, this and the other side. Ah, but do, you, uh, but do you happen to know uh, anyone who has done that? Well, I know Michael Harrell. Yes, now he wrote a, a book in the mid-2000s called uh, Comrades and Strangers. That's right, that's right, yes. Yeah, and, and so are you kind of colleagues? Have you worked together? No, no, we didn't work together. Um, he's, he's, he's in Beijing now. Um, I've known a couple of other people who have been there, just went there for a year and worked there for a year, and that was it. Do they um, still do that? I mean, do, do, does North Korea still farm out its uh, final editing and proofreading to, uh, to foreigners? Well, I'm not sure. They haven't contacted me for a long, long time. Ah, so you and haven't I don't done know anybody work. else who does it. Now that they've got um, embassies in more countries, especially there's one in London, uh, they're probably doing it there, I guess, but I don't know. What are your thoughts about North Korea's image in the international media? Well, it, since the the internet, they begin, they, they're getting their stuff out. The Rodong Shinmun is translated into various languages every day, and they're doing a much more sophisticated job now than they used to. Now, you, you lived here uh, during the, uh, the height of the, the Park Chung-hee era, 1973 to 78. Uh, obviously, uh, the Park Chung-hee government... Yeah. Sorry, 79. Park Chung-hee government was, was not known for its uh, uh, human, good human rights record. You know, there were a lot of people uh, in prison for political crimes and thought crimes and things. Things have improved a bit since the 1970s. Do you have any thoughts on the human rights record of the North Korean government? The South and the North... Uh, sort of like Tweedledum and Tweedledee, in the sense that they can always justify cracking down on human rights because the country is divided and the national enemy is just across the DMZ. So I'm not that surprised. However, when I was in South Korea, we used to see um, uh, slogans all over the place saying, um, uh, so you think your neighbor's not a spy, eh? Look again. Uh, the, the slogans in North Korea are things like, uh, Korea is one. Um, the Americans are our enemies. Uh, not saying much about the South Koreans. Now, I understand that you have a novel, an interesting proposal for how the world should pursue North Korean denuclearization. Can you explain that briefly? Oh, yes. That's right. <laughs> There's one w- only one way to do it, because the problem is this. How do you not... Kim, Kim Jong-un is not going to get rid of his nuclear weapons. 
because that will leave him helpless. He saw what happened to Gaddafi and um, Saddam Hussein, etc. As soon as they disarmed, uh, the Americans overthrew them. Um, America is saying that uh, they have to stay in South Korea with a big military presence uh, to defend uh, the the countries of the Far East against North Korea attacking them with nuclear weapons. So you have a um, an almost insoluble problem here, but it's not insoluble uh, diplomatically because in the early 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, a diplomatic solution was brought about because um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, America found itself facing not just one nuclear power, but five, uh, because um, Kazakhstan, uh, Ukraine, um, Belarus all had Soviet nuclear weapons on their soil. So there are actually five nuclear powers. Now, how how do you solve that problem? They did it. They did it by getting these other countries to hand their nuclear weapons over to Russia. Now, Russia has a vested interest in making sure there's no nuclear war on their borders. The, the protocol was that if these countries were threatened by another nuclear power, for instance, America or anybody else, Russia could say, these weapons belong to these countries and they've asked for them back and will give them back to defend themselves. On the other hand, if these countries, for instance, if Belarus threatens Poland, the Russians will refuse to give them back. So they can't threaten other countries with a nuclear weapon, but at the same time, they cannot be threatened. And this seems to me that the, the, um, the, the solution, if there is one, so, in other words, North Korea should give its nuclear weapons to either Russia or China in trust, and the Russians or the Chinese sort of hold on to them for the North Koreans, just in case the United States or anybody else should threaten them. Yes, it seems to me that's the only way out. Have you put this idea forward to anybody from uh, either the North Koreans or any other government? No, I haven't. Uh, I've included it in uh, the, the monthly. Monthly I put out. Yes, I'm just coming to that now. Actually, tell us a bit about your monthly, the DPRK Business Monthly. What is it, and how do you put it together? Well, I, I do it myself. I've been in the, um, uh, the the publishing business for over 40 years, and I've always wanted to put out my own publication mm. with nobody breathing down my neck, nobody telling me what to write, and not worrying at all whether anybody wants to read it or not. This is what I think. That's why I also send it out free. Um, it's in its 11th year now. And how and where can people check it out? Um, well, my email is laysterdyke2003 at yahoo.co.uk. Okay, we will, uh, and we'll also write that up on the page so that people can see it there and, and write to you for the, uh, the DPRK Business Monthly. Do you send uh, copies of that to the North Korean Embassy in Beijing? Um, I send it to several addresses in, in uh, Pyongyang and a few others. And have the, has the North Korean government shown any interest in uh, in it? Absolutely none. I was hoping, in a sort of pipe dreamy way, that they'd give me some, um, that they'd take notice of it and give me some scoop. Uh, you've done this now for eleven years. What's your uh, your feeling of uh, of how business is going in North Korea? What's your prognosis of that? I get the impression that they are very interested in attracting um, uh, investors. Uh, they definitely, I'm absolutely sure of this. They want to expand their um, their source of investment they, to as far as possible because they think uh, that um, if you've got investment from your enemy, then big business, which they exaggerate but not too much, will use its influence on America and South Korea not to indulge in military um, um, 
confrontation because there's too much money to be lost. Also, the South Korean Chamber are very interested in getting business ties with North Korea because they can get all kinds of minerals from North Korea. They can also get, as we've seen, cheap land and cheap labor. Without that labor having to come south, the work will go to them. And we see this in, um, oh, we saw this in, uh, in Kaesong. Yeah, Kaesong Industrial Complex. Now, are you in touch with any Chinese investors or business people who do business in North Korea? The only investor I'm in contact with is uh, a British guy who runs the Korea Economic um, something or other. Uh, Roger Barrett, you might have heard of him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of him. He, he, he uh, takes investors into North Korea. And I've actually been with him once. And he's got contacts with the Chamber of Commerce and all, all, the, all the big um, uh, commercial people in North Korea. Okay, well, uh, that, I think, is where we're going to end it today. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Paul. Pleasure, pleasure. Stay, yeah, stay well, and, and I will email you about uh, getting on to your uh, monthly subscription list. Right, yeah, thanks. Do that. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.